The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Francis Watch on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I am joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Your Excellency, thank you for joining us. Oh, nice to be here. It's just us today, Your Excellency. We've uh, Father Disposito out sick, and Father Chicada is still recovering from his surgery. So you have a lot of work on your shoulders. Yes, yes. I wish I had uh, one of one or the other to help me because there's a lot to talk about today. It, it's strange because Francis doesn't uh, leave us any time to breathe. It's only been five or, or six weeks since our last Francis watch, but the man just cannot stop speaking. Um, we're we're going to get right into it. Our categories today uh, for those keeping track. Our first one is Bergy the Crank. That's uh, the usual Bergoglio just trying to uh, cause problems by saying outrageous things. Then we have some documents. Then we have a category called conservative pushback. And our final category today is Fat Lady Watch. And I'm sure many of our uh, loyal listeners to Francis Watch can guess what that category will be about. Uh, we're mm-hmm. going to start with Bergie the Crank. And our first uh, story we're going to cover is... Uh, Bergoglio in Lund in Sweden with the Lutherans and before he even got to Sweden on the plane he had some remarks so I call our pre-flight entertainment as opposed to our in-flight entertainment and there, mm-hmm. there's there's so much here you're saying I'm, I'm going to break it there's four paragraphs I'm going to read but I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs have you comment and then I'm going to read the second two paragraphs and have you comment because there's just too much so the first two paragraphs Luther took a great step by putting the word of God into the hands of the people. Reform and scripture are two things that we can deepen by looking at the Lutheran tradition. There is a policy we should have clear in every case. To proselytize in the ecclesial field is a sin. Benedict XVI told us that the church does not grow by proselytism, but by attraction. Proselytism is a sinful attitude. It would be like transforming the church into an organization. Speaking, praying, working together, this is the path that we must take. Look, in ecumenism, the one who never makes a mistake is the enemy, the devil. When Christians are persecuted and murdered, they are chosen because they are Christians, not because they are Lutherans, Calvinists, Anglicans, Catholics, or Orthodox. An ecumenism of blood exists. There wasn't really a sentence I read, Your Excellency, that didn't contain a major error, so feel free to take your time with this. Yeah, this is, has a bunch of errors and heresies in it, so we have to take it one by one. Uh, and also j- just ignorance. Uh, Luther took a great step by putting the Word of God into the hands of the people. Uh, this is false. Uh, uh, the uh, As if the P- 
people uh, had no access to sacred scripture before that. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were a number of translations of sacred scripture in the 1400s, uh, English translations. Uh, he was probably the first with the German translation, but uh, the, there was no keeping the sacred scripture from the people. That is a Protestant accusation, which is absurd. The, uh, it's just not true. Don't forget that the printing press was only uh, invented in, in 1453. So, you know, a book before 1453 was a very rare thing. It cost an enormous amount of money. They were kept in, in libraries and other places. And uh, so, you know, the idea of having a family Bible, you know, unless you were some great noble with huge quantities of land and income, was just a joke. And then, of course, literacy was not very high either. Not everybody uh, knew how to read, especially among the lower classes. They didn't know how to read. Uh, so there was, there was uh, that. And uh, the other thing is that the uh, sacred scripture must always be understood as being the property of the Catholic Church. Revelation is placed in the hands of the teaching church. And the, it is, uh, St. Peter warns us that, that we should not interpret the scriptures by ourselves. And so the, the, the idea of placing the sacred scripture in the hands of the people indiscriminately, that is, without the teaching of the church, is a great uh, mistake. And look at what has happened. They put, you know, in the, in the Lutheran idea, the Protestant idea, you interpret scripture for yourself, and then everybody splits up according to their different interpretations of sacred scripture. That's the history of Protestantism. And it's absurd. The whole thing, the whole system is absurd. So, you know, placing the word of God into the hands of the people uh, is, uh, without the teaching of the church to guide them, is a very dangerous thing. It leads to the, to the corruption and absurdity that Protestantism has given us. And he says, reform and scripture are two things which can deepen, that we can deepen by looking at the Lutheran tradition. I mean, the Lutheran reform is an evil thing that is packed with heresy. Can we even properly call it a reform, Your Excellency? No, it's a revolt. A revolt is the, is the correct term, the Protestant revolt. Uh, because reform usually is in a good sense. Uh, it is to reform something, that is to give it back its original form. Uh, and it's like painting your house or, or uh, fixing something up uh, that, to its original state. Uh, that, that's the idea of reform. Revolt was, is, is exactly what Luther led, and that was a revolt against the teaching authority of the Catholic Church. And so, you know, his whole view uh, of, it, of this the reform or this so-called reform is faulted. It was a heretical revolt against the teaching authority of the Catholic Church, against the priesthood, against the, the prerogatives of, this, of the Holy See. Uh, that's all it was. It was an ugly, ugly thing and has led to, to so many evils in society that it would take me a whole, whole other show to, to talk about them. I, I did talk about them in my October newsletter. Uh, the, what what Protestantism has given us uh, in the political and cultural world. Uh, and, and so, um, uh, so 
uh, it, already right out of the gate, he's he's all wrong. He he's just ignorant about the uh, the the fact that people uh, people's knowledge of sacred scripture. He's just ignorant about that before the Reformation uh, or before the Protestant revolt. Uh, he's just ignorant about it. He's ignorant about many things. I, I do. Uh, see that later on we're going to talk about how he gets all everything mixed up and he makes all kinds of mistakes about even just factual matters. So, uh, so going on to the next, there is a policy we should have clear in every case to proselytize in the ecclesial field is a sin. This is a heresy. This is to say that the command of Christ to teach all nations is false. This is to say that the church's uh, I'd say it's energy to go out and preach the gospel to all nations and to become Catholic. In other words, to be Catholic, that is to establish itself as the universal church in among all nations, is false. It, it ruins the, the, the spirit of the missions. Think of all of the missionaries who went out and taught the gospel. To, to peoples that were, were in need of it. Clearly great sinners, great sinners. They're all that. sinners. They're sinners. You see, that's the only thing you could say about that. And that the church misunderstood for 2,000 years until Mr. B came along what the nature of Christ's command was. It contradicts the teachings of popes, one after the other, about the necessity for, for preaching the gospel. It contradicts the whole... Uh, practice of the Catholic Church. The, the, you know, soon on December 3rd, we'll celebrate St. Fr Francis Xavier. He should be called Sinner Francis Xavier. St. <laughs> Boniface in Germany, we're reading in the, our uh, dining room during the meal the, the uh, history of the North American martyrs who, who underwent incredible sufferings to bring the gospel to the people. Uh, of, of these natives that never, they didn't even have a word for God in their vocabulary. And he had to say the one who knows all or the one who made all. That's how, that's how St. John de Brebeuf had to explain it to them because they were so ignorant of religious things that they didn't have a word for God. Uh, and, and, you know, this, this is a, a blasphemous heresy uh, uh, against the mission of the Catholic Church to teach the whole world the true gospel and to overcome error in matters religious. So there you go. There's heresy number one. And Benedict XVI told us that the church does not grow by proselytism but by attraction. Well, what about... <laughs> you know, that's, that's very nice of Benedict XVI, himself a heretic, should say that. But it's not true. And, and it is... It is confounded by both the teaching of the church and by the practice of the church for 2,000 years. I mean, you could, you could talk about, if you went through all of the missionary activity of the church and what they did, what they said, it would take you hours to, to even touch upon it. He says proselytism is a sinful attitude, which is, as we know, is, is already a heresy. And then, next heresy, it would be like transforming the church into an organization. <laughs> it is an organization. It is de fide that it is a visible society that is organized hierarchically. It is an organization. And you are Catholic because you submit to the 
to that society. You, you accept the visible church. You accept the, the hierarchy. That's how you become a Catholic. It is an organization. These people think that it's a type of movement or communion, as they call it, you know, that we all are sort of connected by some invisible thing. But that, that is a heresy to say that, that it, is a, it would be like tra transforming the church into an organization. It is an organization. And then he says, speaking, praying, working together, this is the path with, that we must take. So remember, this is in conformity with Vatican II. Bergoglio is not the problem. Vatican II is the problem. And keep that in mind for things we are going to say later. Vatican II is the problem, and Vatican II in Lumen Gentium gave us this idea that the that, that Christianity and the Church of Christ is something invisible that transcends the organizational church. That the organizational church is simply a way in which it exists, or subsists, as they said. Uh, so we must understand that this is this is the, the Vatican II speaking here. Uh, look, he says, in ecumenism, the one who never makes a mistake is the enemy, the devil. <laughs> well, I guess we could say that that's true because he's the one that has suggested ecumenism to the church. When Christians are persecuted and murdered, they are chosen because they are Christians, not because they are Lutherans, Calvinists, Anglicans, Catholics, or Orthodox. An ecumenism of blood exists. There's heresy number three. He's just had two paragraphs. And he's got three heresies, and that is that there is that, and he has said this in other places because you know I, that uh, Lutherans or or non-Catholics, when they shed their blood for Christ, are martyrs. So that's what he means by an ecumenism of blood. And you've said in previous episodes that this directly contradicts the Council of Florence. Directly contradicts a defined doctrine of Florence. So. He is a heretic, hands down, no questions asked. All right? Public heretic. All right, well, let's go on to the, the next, next two paragraphs. All right, well, <laughs> as I said, listeners, this is why we had to break it up into two. The, the, the second is, a, is just a, more of a study in incoherence rather than a, a recitation of heresy. Mm -hmm. There are idolatries connected to religion. The idolatry of money, of enmities, of space greater than time, the greed of the territori territori territoriality of space. There is an idolatry of the conquest of space, of dominion, that attacks religions like a malignant virus. An idolatry is a false religion. It is a wrong religiosity. I call religion an imminent transcendence, namely a contradiction. But the true religions plural, are the development of the capacity that humanity has to transcend itself towards the absolute. The religious phenomenon is transcendent, and it has to do with truth, beauty, goodness, and unity. If there isn't this openness, there is no transcendence, there is no religion, there is idolatry. There he says there's no true religion. Right. I have an allergy to talking about spaces, but I always say that you see things better from the peripheries than you do the center. Uh, I have no idea what he's talking about. Well, I have plenty of ideas about what he's talking <laughs> about. I call religion an imminent transcendence. Now, you couldn't get a more modernist term than that. And I invite everyone to read 
Paschendi. Uh, this is new theology modernism, that religion is an openness to God, and everyone has this openness to God, so everyone is religious, and that religions grow out of this openness to God. See, so everyone is fundamentally religious, and then you have your religion, whether it's Buddhism or whatever, uh, because of cultural things. You grow up with other Buddhists, or or that you know, in China, everybody's a Buddhist, and so it doesn't matter really how you express your religious religiosity, so to speak. Uh, you have uh, you have this imminent transcendence. And then he says it's a contradiction, which is just an absurdity. The poor man doesn't know what he's talking about. But the true religions, religions, there's heresy right there, because there is only one true religion, and that is the Roman Catholic Church, outside of which there is no salvation. That's a dogma of the Catholic Church. So to say true religions is already a heresy, okay? Public heresy are the development of the capacity that humanity has to transcend itself toward the absolute. Again, it's, it's copy-paste out of, out of Pascendi, the Pius X's condemnation of modernism. That is just exactly how St. Pius X describes modernism. That, that's the definition of it, that, <laughs> this, this capacity to of humanity to transcend itself toward the absolute. He doesn't say the true God, but the absolute. And that absolute comes up a great deal in Pascendi, the very term absolute. It, it has its origin in, in Schelling. Uh, the absolute is, is this, this thing, this sort of deistic thing where all things are the same, where what is contradictory in this life is the same in the absolute. So it, it is a uh, rationalist substitute for God, that term absolute, right? So there you have heresy number four in just a few paragraphs, right? So, and then the religious phenomenon is transcendent, and it has to do with truth, beauty, goodness, and unity. Those things are natural things, what he just said. You could be an artist and be open to truth, beauty, goodness, and unity. You could be a, an atheist and be open to all of those things. So there's, you know, if there isn't this openness, there is no transcendence, there is no true religion, there is idolatry. So he's saying that if you are not a modernist, you are an idolater, essentially. Mm. So the business about spaces is just... Uh, nonsense that is not worth commenting on yes as i as i said it's 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 just more incoherence yeah it's you know so this as i said was the the uh the pre-flight entertainment when he actually got uh to lund into into sweden uh he had more to say and these are three um different excerpts from this and you can find this uh on the vatican website so again all of mm -hmm. everything that we do on francis watch is cited from actual text we, we don't have to make up things that francis says because he says uh enough for us well however they fix up what he says yes someone someone is that. back there touching things up that's for sure <laughs> you know usually what he says is is worse than what you see on the Vatican website. Right, that's what I mean, Your Excellency. Sometimes we're reading some whitewash stuff. We aren't even, yes. e even the whitewash yes. stuff is still bad. <laughs> yes, but it would be good to get it from the horse's mouth. 
Yes, from 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 the Jorge's mouth, as Father Chicada would add here. At that <laughs> <Yeah>. time. Um, <laughs> In, in this crucial moment of our history, we have the possibility to make reparation for the past division and move beyond the controversies and misunderstandings that have often prevented us from comprehending one another. With gratitude, we recognize that the Reformation has helped give greater centrality to sacred scripture in the life of the Church. Luther's spiritual experience calls to us and reminds us that we can do nothing without God. With the concept of, by grace alone we are saved, he reminds us that God always takes the initiative, prior to any human response, in the very moment in which he arouses a response. The doctrine of justification, therefore, expresses the essence of human existence before God. Again, action-packed, Your Excellency. I'll let you get into it. Uh, With gratitude, we recognize that the Reformation has helped give greater centrality to sacred scripture in the life of the church. Here, again, is ignorance speaking. Uh, The the fathers commented the sacred scriptures thoroughly. Uh, St. Pius X says in Pescendi that these people, these modernists, speak as if no one has ever opened sacred scripture. (laughs) <laughs> that they they have all the answers about sacred scripture and that no one in the church ever opened them up before they got a hold of them. If you look at St. Thomas, who has a greater grasp of sacred scripture than St. Thomas? To read the Summa is practically to read the whole Bible. To, to read the Summa is practically to read all the fathers commenting on sacred scripture. Uh, the uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, I mean, sacred scripture, the commenting on sacred scripture was was integral. It was theology. You know, he doesn't know what he's talking about, this man. You know, that, that it is given greater centrality to sacred scripture in the life of the church. Uh, you know, and he's he's making the the Protestant revolt into something that that really contributed some good. It contributed nothing but evil, nothing but evil. Only indirectly, I would say, that it was a sting upon the immoral clergy. And there were plenty of them, particularly in Italy and particularly in Germany. A big sting on them to pull together and, and clean up their lives and and do a true reform in the church, which is known as the Catholic Reformation and the Tridentine Reform, which you know, in the history of the church is probably one of its, its greatest moments. And as you say, that was an indirect result, Your Excellency. Yes, it was just a sting. It, it's like having a fire in your house. You know, but you can't say that the fire was good, but it might alert you to the fact that you are careless about you know, leaving things around. Or maybe that you have too much stuff. <laughs> yeah, too much stuff, or you know, it's an indirect good uh, that that. Uh, but to try to give the Reformation any kind of intrinsic goodness, oh, it was it was the product of the devil, and we're still reeling from it. Mm. So Luther's spiritual experience, spiritual experience. We all know, perhaps we don't know that he had his his Reformation experience in the toilet. I don't know if you know that. Does everyone yes. know that? And, and I think you've spoken about it in previous episodes. I was just thinking to myself, what is this excellency going to say about Luther's quote-unquote <laughs> spiritual experience? The origin of the, of the Protestant revolt is in the toilet. And, and, you know, it's Luther himself who speaks about it, that he, that he had this, this religious experience 
while having a bout with constipation in the toilet. And that, you know, he was all troubled by his sinful life. And uh, he said, oh, there it is. You know, by faith alone, we are justified. We don't have to worry about obeying the commandments of God. And he himself said that God doesn't expect us to obey the commandments. Uh, he, he knows that it's impossible for us to do that. So he gives everyone a free pass with his faith alone. So to call that a spiritual experience, I mean, uh, it's some sort of other experience, but it's certainly not a spiritual experience. Uh, it calls to us and reminds us that we can do nothing without God. All right. So he's trying to transform that into some sort of orthodoxy. This heresy from the toilet is transformed into orthodoxy at the end of the sentence. And of course, we can do nothing in the supernatural order without God. With the uh, even in the natural order, by his by his uh, helping us, you know, he's he's the the author of all the movement, the ultimate author of all the movement in the universe. But in any case, with the concept, this, the, he continues, Bergoglio continues, with the concept of by grace alone we are saved, which is a heresy, he minds that, that's not Bergoglio, he reminds us that God always takes the initiative prior to any human response. So again, an ugly heresy has been transformed into a truth. Yes, it is true. The, the first movement toward God must always be by actual grace, all right? <clears throat> in the very moment in which he arouses a response. The doctrine of justification, therefore, expresses the essence of human existence before God. Uh, so that's just a platitude, which really means nothing. It, it is true that God must draw you. No one can go to God unless he is drawn by actual grace. That's true. That's not what Luther was saying, though. So this is a, a whitewash, a nonsensical whitewash of a heresy. Uh, and uh, it's all it is. So let's go on to the next one. Well, the next one's a, an image. Again, we this being radio, we can't necessarily share an image, but you can find it on the internet. There's a chocolate statue of Luther, and he was presented with the 95 Theses, and some people had implied this was a, a semi-canonization, that you have this, albeit chocolate statue, and then you have this beautifully bound 95 Theses being presented to... Uh, Bergoglio, that these are the sorts of things you would celebrate at a canonization. You might have an image, you may have some great work that the saint has authored, and you know, for for Catholics who may say, well, Your Excellency, does this really mean anything? I mean, how would you interpret having this this statue and and the presentation of the theses? Well, again, it's a uh, at the very least uh, a whitewash of of heresy. At the very least, uh, I would say it's an approval of heresy, uh, that he would accept the 95 theses, which are heretical. Uh, some of them are, some of them are. Uh, but certainly they represent heresy. They all represent the spirit of heresy and the revolt. But he denies uh, indulgences in there and he um, and other things. Uh, so, I mean, that should have been, first of all, the meeting never should have taken place. If someone hands you the 95 Theses, you throw them on the floor and you spit at them. That's what you do with heresy. Uh, you, you don't you know, take it and say, oh, this is you know, so very nice and all. Uh, the, the, uh, you know, I would like to 
to give him a few. Maybe we, I should hand him my articles, see what he would do with them. Mm. This is ecumenism again, uh, which is condemned by the Catholic Church. It is to elevate heresy into orthodoxy. It is to uh, reduce orthodoxy into heresy. Uh, it is an amalgamation uh, of the two. Uh, and you get neither orthodoxy, well, you get heresy at the end because any heresy, even one, corrupts orthodoxy. Uh, just it, all it takes, as I always use, I always use the example of one pin in the balloon. There's one, one uh, act of heresy is enough to destroy all orthodoxy. So uh, it, it's the same thing. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's like kissing the Quran on the part of uh, John Paul II. Uh, nothing else really to say about it. The last uh, last uh, story that we're going to cover as part of the Lund coverage, uh, Francis with the Lutherans. Who are the greatest reformers of our churches? I would say that the greatest reformers of the churches are the saints, those who follow the word of the Lord and put it to practice and walk on the path. This reforms the church. They might not be theologians, some are great, some are small, but they have a life full of the gospel. These are the ones who reform the church. There are such people in both the Lutheran and the Catholic church, people with a saintly heart that follow the gospel. These are the ones who reform the church. Another question was, what do I like and dislike about the Lutheran church? I like Lutherans who truly follow the faith of Christ. I do not like lukewarm Catholics nor lukewarm Lutherans. I do not like these. Okay, so first sentence, churches in the plural is heresy because there's only one true church, and that is the Catholic Church, outside of which there is no salvation. So he's got a heresy right from the gate. Right? Uh, the, uh, the False churches do not exist in the eyes of God. They are not ecclesiastical institutions that have validity or some license from God to exist. They are just groups of heretics or schismatics. We always have to remember that. They, they, are, they have organized themselves in some human way, but that has no, no validity in God's eyes. There was only one church that he founded. So the church only pertains, properly so-called, to the Catholic Church. All right, so the, the bands of heretics or bands of schismatics might be a better... Uh, groups, uh, uh, that would be a better way to refer to those things. Mm. Uh, so the, the greatest reformers of the churches, so to speak, are, are the saints. Or Already, how can you have a saint in a, in a heretical sect? That would be the Catholic response to that. It's impossible to have a saint in a heretical sect, right? Uh, and uh, they have a life full of the gospel. Again, impossible for someone in, heretic, in a heretical sect because... They, they reject the teachings of the Catholic Church. Uh, so there are such people both in the Lutheran and the Catholic Church, people with a saintly heart that follow the gospel. Again, how can you have that among heretics? Heresy uh, condemns you to hell. If you embrace heresy through your own fault, you are condemned to hell. How can you have a saintly heart when, when in fact, at least objectively, you're condemned to hell? Uh, these are the ones who reform the church. You know? So another question was, what do I dislike about Luther, like and dislike? <clears throat> I like Lutherans who truly follow the faith of Christ. 
again, it's impossible that they follow the faith of Christ if they are not following the faith of the Catholic Church. To say so is heresy. To say that a heresy is in fact orthodoxy is itself a heresy. To say that the Lutherans have the faith of Christ is a heresy. They don't, they are heretics. And the Catholic Church has always had this absolute uh, principle of condemnation of heresy and exclusion of heresy as part of its essential role of protecting orthodoxy, of protecting the true doctrine. If you break that down, you, you, you just flush away the Catholic Church. And that's what he does. And as I always say, the real guilty parties here are not Bergoglio's. We know what Bergoglio is and people like him. It's the, the, the Novus Ordo conservatives and others like SSPX and everything who, who continue to look at him and people like him as Catholics. They are not Catholics. They contradict the Catholic faith. They do so publicly. And to see him as a Catholic is, is worse than what Bergoglio does because he has made it so plain to everybody that he is not a Catholic, that those who still retain the faith and, and regard him as a Catholic are doing worse harm than what he's doing. Well, it always comes back to Vatican II, as you say, Your Excellency. It comes back to Vatican II, it does. It's, this is all in Vatican II, all of this ecumenism. Once you approve of ecumenism, you, you give a license to all of this mishmash uh, of, of doctrine that is not Roman Catholicism and which abandons the, the role of the Catholic Church to protect its doctrine. And that's what it has done up to Vatican II and continues to do in those who are faithful. But those who see this man as a Catholic, and not only as a Catholic, but the Pope, as I said, are doing more harm than he is doing because they have received the grace to know, and they do not act on it. Uh, the next is a, a new requirement um, to, to be a Christian, uh, Your Excellency. You cannot be a Christian without living like a Christian. You cannot be a Christian without practicing the Beatitudes. You cannot be a Christian without doing what Jesus teaches us in Matthew 25. Now, uh, this again is uh, Bergoglio shoehorning the refugee issue into the gospel teaching. And you've, you've mentioned this, we've done previous episodes talking about immigration and, and other things like that. But again, your Excellency, it can't be said enough. How, how does a Christian, how does a Catholic understand the refugee crisis and how do we relate it to being a quote-unquote true Christian as opposed to what Bergoglio is implying? Well, first of all, there's a heresy in what he says. Yet another, we should keep count before this. <laughs> so, you cannot be a Christian without living like a Christian. That's a heresy. Uh, it's against the Council of Trent. Uh, it's to say that if you do not practice Catholicism, let's say, or the true faith, that you cease to be a Catholic. And that's not true. For as long as you profess the Catholic faith, you are a Catholic. You could be the worst sinner in the world. You could... You could be uh, like uh, the rich man, and uh, you know, despising Lazarus, uh, the poor man that that was with the dogs and all in the parable. But you're still a Roman Catholic. You know, you might be bound to hell, and those are on the way to hell. But you're still a Roman Catholic. For him to say this is typically modernist. That unless you you and uh, uh, Ratzinger said the same thing. That unless you put it into action, you're not truly Christian. That's false. 
and it's heresy. Um, so, uh, the, the attitude toward the refugees, it, well, first of all, the Catholic Church and, and all Catholics in general should have a sensitivity to anyone who is in need or distress. No matter what their religion, uh, the Catholic Church never, never excluded anybody from its charity on the basis of religion, really on the basis of anything. <laughs> anything at all, the, the, the worst sins that you could commit, it, it never excluded anybody on that basis, all right? And that's very important to understand, that, that charity does not have the, the, the borders of religion, that, that you can be charitable to anyone and you should be charitable to anyone, all right? Uh, however, the refugee thing ha has, you know, many other aspects to it. Uh, it, it would be in principle correct to bring in people from a, a war zone who were truly in need. Yes, according to the abilities of your country and with sensitivity to many other aspects of it. Uh, but yes, they are in extreme need and, and you should help them in principle. But we know that, that there are other aspects here and one is religion. Now, in a Catholic country, if you were to accept Muslims in, you would have to tell them, look, you cannot have any public expression of your Islamic religion. And see that this is a Catholic country, and yes, we want to help you and, and give you food and clothing and everything, but you cannot practice your, any, have any public practice of, of your Muslim religion. You cannot build mosques and have you know, seminaries for imams and things like that. See, but with liberalism, you know, there's no barrier that way. You can be whatever you want. And so that, that's problem number one is that, uh, especially in Europe, it breaks down, I would call the vestiges of Christianity, and it, it paves the way for an Islamic Europe. Uh, but, you know, that's really a deeper question of, of, of the liberalism that has overtaken Europe. Uh, so th there's that question, and the, and the more important question, well, well, I shouldn't say more important, but given liberalism, if we set that aside, the, the, uh, if you look at who's coming in, most of them were young men without families who would be very uh, suspect of terrorism. And we see what they have done in Europe. They are, many of them are terrorists, and then many of them are rapists. They have no uh, respect for Christian women. Uh, Christian women are like dogs that you just treat as sex objects. And, and so they, they rape these people. Uh, I, I hear stories from Europeans about, you know, what's going on in Germany and other places. Uh, and it's appalling. So you can't just take them in indiscriminately. You know, you would have to in some way uh, vet them to, in order to determine that they're not terrorists. And, and, uh, I think, you know, the, the, proper thing to do with regard to people that are em emigrating and then immigrating from any of those countries is that they must prove that they're not terrorists. Because the presumption is that they are. Hmm. They must prove that they're not. They must prove by family background and various attestations. And uh, many of them may not be able to prove because you cannot, in the name of charity, bring in a terrorist into your country, obviously. That's not a charity to anybody. And terrorists should should just stay in those countries and suffer what they need to suffer in those war zones because they just want to bring war to your own country. 
I mean, that's just an insanity. It's against common sense that terrorists should be the object of charity and that we should open our doors indiscriminately to these countries that breed terrorists. You'd have to be out of your mind to say that. Hmm. Yet, you know, this is what our governments are doing. And, and I just hope the, the Trump administration is going to be stronger on that point. See? And he also said, Trump also said that no refugee will be placed in your community unless you consent to it, which I think is correct, too. Well, let's see if he can deliver, uh, Your Your Excellency. Well, we'll see what happens. Yeah, you know, he's he's backed up on a lot of things so far, which I kind of expected. But I don't know. We're, I think we're going to get a very mixed bag. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, can, uh, speaking of mixed bags, we're going to continue with uh, some more quotes from Francis. Uh, the mm -hmm. next three are on three different themes. God's greatest enemy is money. I am allergic to flatterers and opposition to the death penalty. We'll go one at a time. God's greatest, greatest enemy is money. If you think about it, Jesus gives money Lord status, master status when he says, no one can serve two masters, two lords, God and money. God and wealth. He doesn't say God and, I don't know, disease or God and something else. He says money because money is an idol. So who knew you're actually God's greatest enemy, not Satan. It's actually money. This is an absurdity to say that. I mean, the, obviously we need money. We need a, a medium of exchange. And he, he twists our Lord's words because our Lord is referring to the service of money. That is where we are subject, uh, we make ourselves subject to money. We are obsessed with money. We are avaricious. Yes, that is a sin. It's not God's greatest enemy. It is a sin to do that. And, and yes, it is a source of many other sins. Uh, certainly, avarice is one of the uh, seven capital sins. But, you know, he, he, he makes such a blanket statement that the enemy is money. Well, then, if that's the enemy, why doesn't he return all of, don of the donations to the Vatican? You know, why is there Peter's Pence? Why is the Vatican taking in enormous quantities of money every day? Well, that would make, you, that would make the church an organization, Your, Your Excellency, and we know that <laughs> yes. it can't be an organization, whatever it is. Why, why, is it, why does it cost money to get into the Vatican museums if, if money is the enemy? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, that they have uh, enormous resources, uh, the Vatican. And, and uh, uh, why isn't he giving it all away and, and opening the doors to, to the Vatican museums? Uh, and uh, why does it cost money to get into the Cathedral of Pisa? <laughs> I think when, when we when we hear when we hear these quotes, Your Excellency, it comes back to thing something you said, and I can't believe we've been doing Francis Watch for years at this point. But you said over the years that he he just he, he doesn't consider anything. There there's no pre thought. Whatever comes into his brain, whatever brain there is, it comes out of his mouth. <laughs> There's, there's no filter there. So he says something like this. There's no there's no consideration. Even you can see within it, he says, God and wealth, he doesn't say, and I don't know, disease or God and something else. It, it sounds like someone who's just having a chat with some friends, not someone who is uh, ostensibly the vicar of Jesus Christ on earth. The vicar of Jesus Christ on earth doesn't talk like this. He certainly doesn't give, you know, 30 interviews in 30 days. No, although that's the least of his problems. But the... The uh, it, it's uh, yes, he does say anything that comes to his mind. Uh, it's usually wrong. It's usually laden with ignorance of facts or history. 
uh, or theology or even basic doctrine. Uh, it, you know, he, he, he just has no credibility at all. Uh, and, and to say something so general as this, you know, it, it makes, you know, if a non-Catholic looks at that, he's going to say, well, that's ridiculous. Hmm. Indeed. Uh, that's absurd to say something like that. And, and you know, there are very strong distinctions that you must make when you talk about money uh, and that money has a use and that you should, you know, have something put away. You should not spend it on frivolous things and you should give to the poor and all, all of that, you know, you can go on to our website and listen to sermons that I've given about money and avarice. Uh, of course, it's all, uh, the church never says anything that is not in accordance with reason and common sense. It never does. The, the church is, is the friend of reason and common sense, and that is why people are attracted to it, that it has, its doctrine connects with reason and common sense, and, and very particularly its moral doctrine. That's all natural law. It's, it's, it's all explain, explained by theologians why this is true. And to say something like this is perfectly absurd. It, it's the words of a communist. You know, it, it, don't forget he's a communist. So, you know, this is just sort of, this is burning incense in front of the communist idol. That's what he's doing. The next quote, I am allergic to flatterers. It comes naturally, A. Eh? Flattery is not a virtue. Flattering another person is to use another person for a hidden or obvious reason, but it is used to obtain something for oneself. It is also shameful. When I receive praise, even when it is for something that has gone well, you know straight away when the person praising you is praising God. That's good, well done, keep up the good work, that's the way it's done. Or whether they're being oleaginous, uh, detractors speak. I've never heard that word. <laughs> <laughs> it's got that oily sensibility. It, must, uh, it means uh, unctuous, oily. Right, that's yeah. Uh, detractors speak ill of me and I deserve it because I am a sinner. That's the way I see it. That doesn't worry me. And I think Novus Ordo Watch tweeted at this time that if he was allergic to flattery, that they were going to uh, send a bunch of uh, flattering tweets his way and, and that that maybe he might take sick. Um, <laughs> I mean, can you believe this guy? He says he's allergic to flatterers. The man eats it up. Yeah, it, it, he's, yes, uh, of course, it's absurd. And it, it's that humility on display, you know. It, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's something that you don't talk, the way you kill flattery is by just saying thank you. If somebody says, oh, you're the most wonderful, you know, this and that, just say thank you and then move on. You don't talk about it this way. Uh, it, it is to, again, uh, you know, uh, put yourself on display like i am humble I and mean, don't flatter me because i am humble I mean, you know it, it's just it's just so absurd and, and brainless and you know so the uh detractors speak ill of me uh well what about those four cardinals he says <laughs> don't worry we'll, we'll, we'll get to that and i deserve it because i am a sinner that's the way i see it he went into a rage over those four cardinals, which we'll talk about later, who who brought up his his uh, amoris laetitia heresies, uh, not using the word, of course. Uh, uh, he went into a rage, and also his his uh, ill treatment uh, of anybody who opposes him. We'll we'll get to that, so Your Excellency. Like don't, don't don't worry. No. <laughs> well, we know this is how communists are. They they have. Uh, yeah. They they act like they're they're men of the people, but they uh, act like the the most uh, 
strict tyrants. Um, the, the last quote, uh, this is why the death penalty is not acceptable. Yes, you may say to me, but in the 15th and the 16th centuries, they killed criminals, issuing the death sentence with the hope of going to heaven. There was a chaplain who sent you to heaven. I'm thinking of the great Father Cafaso there at the gallows. But this was another anthropology, a different culture. We cannot think like this today. I mean, I suppose in one way he's right, Your Excellency. I mean, that was Christendom. And we certainly don't have that today. So, I mean, yes, we, 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 we can't think like that anymore. But uh... <laughs> yes, uh, uh, interesting is anthropology as if it's an evolution of human beings. Mm. Uh, the uh, Well, again, this is contrary to the teaching of the church. First of all, it's in sacred scripture, the death penalty. Moses, you know, calls for the stoning of blasphemers and all. Uh, uh, the, uh, the which the Jews cited to Pilate that he has blasphemed and therefore he deserves to die. Uh, the the whole world has used the death penalty. The uh, church defends it philosophically and morally uh, as uh, because the state has the power of God to rule. And St. Paul says that the, that the king has the sword, and he has that by God. It's in St. Paul. So there's one thing you do with the sword, and that is to kill people with it. And uh, so, you know, it has scriptural basis. It has uh, theological basis. That means explanations from uh, that, that the state can cut off a member, just as you can cut off a, an arm if it's gangrenous. The state can cut off one of its own members by analogy. Uh, and it has been used uh, even by the most civilized peoples. And it's only as human beings have denied the, the fact that the state has its power from God that they also now deny the, the death penalty. Ironically, they approve of abortion. That the, you can, uh, the death penalty is all right for a, an unborn child, uh, even right up to the day uh, that it's uh, of its maturity, uh, that's fine that that a woman has a right to to dictate the death penalty but the the state does not have the right to dictate the death penalty to a convicted criminal and heinous criminals uh, and uh, again it's it's the absence of God the woman has the right to dictate the death penalty for her child because uh, that's part of her body and and God has nothing to say about it and the state uh, is, is a godless state and therefore does not have the authority of God and therefore is incapable of giving the death penalty and implicitly is incapable of making any law at all if it doesn't have God behind it. For why do you uh, obey the state except that the law has power from God? There's no, you know, the, the Congress is just a bunch of human beings. Who are they to decide that you have to obey a law. If they're equal to you, if they're just a bunch of human beings equal to you, then where is the obligation to obey them if their law does not have the authority of God behind it? Why can a judge put you in prison for 20 years if he does not have the power of God to do that? So really you're, you're talking, you know, when you take God out of the state, and that's what the denial of the of the uh, death penalty does, it takes God out of the state, you're looking at anarchy. You're looking at a state that operates on a machine gun. In other words, fear of who has the guns, who has the power to incarcerate, 
and not a state based on on true law which comes from god and true authority which comes from god in our in our next news item under Bergie the Crank, Your Excellency, I I and other people of my age are now under the gun of Francis. The quote is, I always try to understand what's behind people who are too young to have experienced the preconciliar liturgy, and yet they still want it. Sometimes I found myself confronted with a very strict person with an attitude of rigidity, and I asked myself, why so much rigidity? Dig, dig, this rigidity always hides something insecurity or even something else rigidity is defensive true love is not rigid well i i'm not quite certain what i'm hiding your excellency but uh <laughs> apparently i'm really rigid like i believe in black and white or something well the, it's funny that this rigid should come up i was just talking to the seminarians yesterday about how i have not heard that word rigid since the 1960s and I was called rigid in the in the modernist seminary because you know I was objecting to Vatican II and all of its reforms. And it, it, it's it, he he uses all the terminology from the sixties, which I haven't heard for you know fifty years. Uh, but it, yes, <laughs> you know maybe uh, the young people are interested in the traditional mass because it happens to be Catholic. Did you ever <laughs> think of that? That, that it, it, it happens to have all of the properties of the Catholic faith. It happens to be the expression of the Catholic faith, which is the fruit of centuries of the contemplation of monks and various other people and saints who contributed to this wonderful mass we have. Whereas the uh, ugly concoction that was done in the 1960s of a supposedly Catholic mass, stripped of anything that is properly Catholic, just doesn't have a lot of attraction. You know, maybe that's the answer to his question, that, that it has flopped on its face as a reform, that, that it stinks. Maybe that's the answer to the question. <laughs> and, and, but, you know, they are so prideful. They cannot think, oh, you know, maybe there's something wrong with the 1969 Mass. Oh, oh, impossible. It's not possible. Maybe there's something empty about it, you know? No. You know, it, it's that there's something wrong with these young people. That's it. There's something wrong with the young people. They're rigid. And there's something, you know, deeper than their rigidity. It might be the Catholic faith in them. You know, that, that, that's, um, of course, being sarcastic. You see, but you see the pride in that? Mm. You know, and as soon as that, you know, you would think an open-minded person would say, you know, why? Why are our churches empty on the one hand, the ones that have accepted the new mass? Why are they empty and emptying out? Why are the majority of people there with gray hair? Why are we losing the young people from those parishes? I, I, the, uh, I recently, in one of my speeches recently, I saw this, the statistic, I think it was in this country, United States, that 20% of those who are baptized persevere after age 23. Hmm. That means that in those 23 years, the Novus Ordo loses 80%. Now, that doesn't mean that those 20% believe in the Catholic faith. It just means that they're still in the pews. I mean, they're all poisoned with non-Catholic heresies. I mean, just, just loaded with error and heresy. But they're still in the pews. The 80% are not in the pews. Hmm. You know, what's wrong? 
but you know the pride to say that there's something wrong with the people who want the traditional mass they are loaded with pride that the thing has fallen flat on its face 50 years of failure 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 from the point of view of of the life signs of the catholic church one huge failure and and then they they when people are young people want the traditional mass there's something wrong with them and that rigidity word comes out rigidity means the same thing as catholic orthodoxy it means the same thing that means being a true catholic that's what we're hiding your excellency we're hiding <laughs> that we're actually orthodox yes. catholics that's all it means dig dig and you'll and, find and, people who adhere to the catholic faith <laughs> you know and, and and they hate it and he hates it he hates the catholic faith he hates the the faith that he was raised in the faith that he was baptized in and raised in raised in by probably very pious italian catholics in argentina argentina was always a pious place and he he's turned his back on it and hates it i always say it's like murdering your grandmother and hanging her up in the closet you don't want to open that closet door and see the the putrefying body of your grandmother uh, once you have done that there there is a a uh, hatred that that uh, boils in you uh, because you have done something evil and and I, I that's what I think is is in his mind that that he why is is he always harping on this why does he what hate is in his heart for for these people that simply want to be Catholic the way it was before Vatican II why does he hate them hmm. The the next uh, uh, story co it comes from an interaction uh, up in Sweden, Your Excellency. But the reason I, I wanted to isolate it is because it contains just such an such an iniquitous quote that I think it needed to be discussed on its own. And I think what's heartbreaking about this interaction is the the young woman who's addressing him seems to have some kind of general uh, sense of of religion or seeking after something and this man who she's seeking help from just generally is not just destroying catholic notions but but any notion of of religiosity and uh, mm -hmm. i'll read the quote from the young lady and then i'll read francis's response dear pope francis my name is henriette i am from magdeburg and i am 15 years old in our state of Saxony-Anhalt, about 80% of the people are without any religious affiliation, 13.9% of the inhabitants are Lutheran, and only 3.5% are Catholic. Most of my friends do not go to church and do not believe in God. They are happy, helpful, and truly good friends. Do I have to convince others of my faith, or is it enough that they are good friends to me? His response. The first question, the one that was posed in the context of the region having 80% of the population without a creed is, do I have to convince these friends, good ones who work and who are happy, do I have to convince them of my faith? What must I say to convince them? Listen, the last thing you must do is to speak. You have to live as a Christian, like a Christian, convinced, forgiven, and on a path. It is not licit to convince them of your faith. Proselytism is the strongest poison against the ecumenical path. You must give testimony to your Christian life. Testimony will unsettle the hearts of those who see you. And from this unsettling grows one question. But why does this man or this woman live like that? And that prepares the ground for the Holy Spirit, because it is the Holy Spirit that works in the heart. He does what needs to be done, but he needs to speak, not you. 
Grace is a gift, and the Holy Spirit is the gift of God, from whence comes grace and the gift that Jesus has sent us by his passion and resurrection. It will be the Holy Spirit that moves the heart with your testimony. That is why that is why you ask, and regarding that you can tell the why with much thoughtfulness, but without wanting to convince. All right, well, let's go back to sacred scripture which I'm being sarcastic. Martin Luther was so good. Right, to he gave a great gift to the church. Bring our attention to. Let's go back to sacred scripture. When the Holy Ghost descended upon the apostles, what was the first thing that they did? They began giving they began giving testimony and speaking of of God to their neighbors. They went out and preached the gospel. I mean, they came out of that room and started preaching the gospel and they converted 5,000. They spoke in tongues so that everyone could hear what they were saying by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, you know, if he's so attached to sacred scripture, what are we supposed to say about those apostles? That they're sinners? That St. Peter and St. John and all the others that went out, they're sinners? And when they were told by the Sanhedrin to stop talking about Christ, what did they say? We must obey God rather than men, and they continued to preach the gospel. And what did St. Paul do? Did he just go around to the various cities of Asia Minor and just act like a good Christian? Didn't he preach the gospel to every single creature that he could get his, would lend him his ears anyway? I mean, that's all he did was preach the gospel. That's how the church was founded in all of those places. I mean, this man is totally detached from Christianity. Uh, the, the, uh, and and St. Paul says, how can you believe if someone does not preach it to you? <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, 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 it's something else. He's not even Christian. I mean, this is detachment from the basics of, of the gospel and of the, the Acts of the Apostles. Right, and again, you see this girl's just crying out for permission to share her faith, whatever faith. I mean, I don't know whether she's a Lutheran or a Novus Ordo, but, you know, just in that little aspect, uh, you know, can I tell them about Jesus? And he says, no, <laughs> don't do right. that. That would be, and, and I just that, that phrase, proselytism is poison. I mean, what against, an iniquitous phrase. Yes, against the ecumenical path. So you see that the true religion is ecumenism. And you must not do anything that is contrary to ecumenism. And that, that is Vatican II. Vatican II is the ecumenical council, not in the Catholic sense, but in the sense of the council of ecumenism. And as I have said many times, all of the other errors of, of Vatican II come from ecumenism. Ecumenism is the idol. It is the, the idol of Jupiter in the temple, and it must have incense uh, offered to it and, you know, various other things like chickens every once in a while. And there's, I'm, I'm again being sarcastic, I'm talking about the pagan rites. They have taken Christ off the throne uh, of, of, or they would like to, uh, in other words, they have, in their modernist religion, they have taken Christ off the throne and they have placed ecumenism as the true religion. See, that you would sin against ecumenism if you were to open your mouth. Whereas the Catholic Church says, open your mouth. <laughs> uh, what does St. Paul says? Argue in, 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 you know, opportune, importune, which means when it's, when it's a good time to argue and when it's a bad time to argue, argue. 
That's that was uh, the uh, it's in the I, I think it's today's very gospel of doctors that you argue the faith whether your hearer likes it or not. And I also do remember something about a light under a bushel basket, something like <laughs> right. that. Right. I mean, you know, what? What? And you know, uh, preach the gospel to every creature. You know, the 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 preach preaching is 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 a. Uh, it is so basic to the Catholic Church that I, I don't know, I can't find words to describe it. And, you know, for him to say you, you can't open your mouth because it would destroy ecumenism. Yeah, this is, this is, it's heresy. It is to deny the, the mission of the church to preach the gospel. Indeed. Uh, you know, again, you know, again, I say, this is so basic that the real villains are the ones that still regard him as a Catholic and worse, still regard him as a Pope. Those are the villains in the Catholic Church because they will not open their eyes and see this for what it is. Well, they're, they're too rigidly attached to the white cassock, uh, Your Excellency. Yeah, so I call it ecclesiastical materialism. And that sounds like uh, priests that drive around in Mercedes Benzes, and I don't mean that. I mean that all they are looking at is the institutional side of the church. They are not looking at what makes the church to be what it is, which are the invisible things of the church. You could, you know, the Lutherans have a hierarchy. But what makes the Catholic hierarchy the Catholic hierarchy is its adherence to the true faith. See, so, they, you know, without the true faith, they, they, they are just a bunch of dead bodies. That's all they are. Hmm. From the point of view of hierarchy, they're just a bunch of dead bodies. They, 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 are like, uh, <laughs> they are like balloons without air in them or, you know, a blimp with no helium. Uh, it, it's just a, a ghost of a hierarchy. That's all it is. And, and but you know they see that you know and that's what you mean they see the white cassock he's running around the Vatican and that's what they get attached to they they refuse to see that this is a deviation from the Catholic faith and that therefore uh, these people have have lost any claim to be the true Catholic hierarchy they are the ones that do the damage because if you had a strong reaction to him that is a popular, strong reaction to him, we would solve the problem in the church. For as long as the those who claim to have the Catholic faith, and perhaps still do, regard him as the Roman pontiff, they are the ones doing all the damage in the church. We want to remind our listeners that you're listening to Francis Watch on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and today, Bishop Donald Sanborn has been guiding us through the various utterances of Francis uh, since mid-October mid through late November 2016. We've been talking about what he said before and during his trip to Sweden to quote-unquote celebrate Martin Luther. We've talked about um, the... The fact that uh, helping the poor is necessary for salvation, that uh, God's greatest enemy is money, that uh, the death penalty should be opposed, and most recently we covered the fact that proselytism, not just solemn nonsense anymore, Your Excellency, it's poison too. And um, sin. 
It's sense. <laughs> I tell you, it's the worst worst thing to be uh, to be a missionary these days. Um, we're going to move on to our next segment today, which is documents. Uh, so in addition to all these interviews and, and off-the-cuff statements and homilies at Santa Marta, we have new documents. And the first one, Your Excellency, in addition to new rosary, new stations of the cross, new code of canon law, new catechism, we now have new Beatitudes uh, because mm-hmm. apparently our Lord uh, was incomplete when he gave them. And this, again, is you can find this uh, from... Uh, the Vatican website under uh, under his homilies. The Beatitudes are in some sense the Christian's identity card. They identify us as followers of Jesus. We are called to be blessed, to be followers of Jesus, to confront the troubles and anxieties of our age with the spirit and love of Jesus. Thus, we ought to be able to recognize and respond to new situations with fresh spiritual energy. Blessed are those who remain faithful while enduring evils inflicted on them by others and forgive them from their heart. Blessed are those who look into the eyes of the abandoned and marginalized and show them their closeness. Blessed are those who see God in every person and strive to make others also discover him. Blessed are those who protect and care for our common home. Blessed are those who renounce their own comfort in order to help others. Blessed are those who pray and work for full communion between Christians. All these are messengers of God's mercy and tenderness, and surely they will receive from him their merited reward. I suppose that is a point of agreement, Your Excellency. We both agree that Bergoglio is going to dis- res- dis- um, receive his merited reward at some point from our Lord. <laughs> what he deserves, whatever he deserves, he'll get, yes. <laughs> so, so how do you feel about these new Beatitudes? Well, it's it's the social gospel beatitudes. You know, it's socialism. The the instead of the Christian's identity card, it should be the socialist's identity card. I mean, you could say this about any atheist or agnostic; they could conform to all of these things. It has nothing to do with Christianity. As I always say, why not shut down the Novus Ordo and just bring in the Salvation Army? Because the right. Salvation Army does this and believes these things much more efficaciously than the Novus Ordo does. That, that's the religion of social gospel. And why not just give all the money of the Vatican to the Salvation Army and, and, and just you know, shut down Novus Ordoism, and they can give us St. Peter's Basilica, we'll be happy to take care of it, and then they can just figure, wash their hands, a Salvation Army does this much better than we do. I mean, they stand outside in front of stores with the Santa Claus outfit on, ringing a bell, even when it's cold, and they collect a lot of money and they give to the poor. You know, so this is nothing new with him. He's a communist, and communists are atheists. I think he's an atheist. And so for him, the purpose of religion is to make a better world. And it should not marginalize or exclude anyone. Uh, and that's why ecumenism is the ultimate uh, god of the new religion. And, and the purpose of all of, the, of religion is to make people better in, in a purely naturalistic way. That's all this means. I don't have one of those identity cards. I'm sorry, I'm not a card carrying uh, social gospel man. <laughs> You can, he, he'll probably he'll probably make them into a card and then you can carry them around. You can print it out and <laughs> clip it into your wallet. The The next document is an apostolic letter, Misericordia et Misera. Um, 
I haven't figured out, again, with the end of the year, uh, well, the beginning of the liturgical year and the coming break in the seminary, I don't know whether His Excellency will have time to take a look at this in depth. So we may come, not in a Francis Watch, but in another episode, we may go into this apostolic letter a bit more. For purposes of Francis Watch, I'm only going to focus on a specific paragraph, and that is, for the Jubilee year, I had also granted that those faithful who for various reasons, attend churches officiated by the priests of the priestly fraternity of St. Pius X, can validly and licitly receive the sacramental absolution of their sins. For the pastoral benefit of these faithful, and trusting in the goodwill of their priests to strive with God's help for the recovery of full communion in the Catholic Church, I have personally decided to extend this faculty beyond the Jubilee year until further provisions are made, lest anyone ever be deprived of the sacramental sign of reconciliation through the church's pardon. That is indefinite faculties, Your Excellency. I mean, they've got to be uh, jumping up and down um, for this. What's your reaction? I think it's just one more step in the old story of the frog in, in the boiling pot. Uh, I think that they have decided on a step-by-step reintegration of the Society of St. Pius X into the Novus Ordo uh, structures, uh, uh, that little by little, by one concession after another, uh, they will just gradually become part of it, like an evolution, something like going from a monkey uh, into a man, but perhaps you know, in the reverse in this case. The, the, uh, but th- I think that's a step in it, uh, in my opinion. Uh, I think that for both sides, a, a sudden approval would be difficult. I think there would be a lot of bishops in revolt, and I think that there could be a number of faithful and um, uh, priests in that group in, in revolt against it. Uh, so, you know, the story of the, the, the frog in the, in the pot is if you throw him into the boiling water, he's going to jump out, but if you gradually increase the heat as time goes on, then he's cooked in the end. So, uh, the uh, I think that's what it is, just another step. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, if they have an illegitimate apostolate, which they have always said, of saying mass and all of these other things, establishing seminaries, doing ordinations and all, if that's all illegitimate, how can you say that it's licit for priests to approach them for the sacrament of penance? It makes no sense at all from the ecclesiological point of view. The distribution of sacraments is is something that is intimately bound with the unity of the church, and so you know if they are if they don't have a legitimate apostolate for for the other things, why are they legitimate in this? So you know it makes no sense. But uh, the uh, uh, but I, I think that's what it is. You see gradual little ways here and there in which they are integrating, and uh, it's like a cake in the oven. When it's ready, it'll come out. And, and we'll be there to eat it, Your, your Excellency, when it does come out. <laughs> well, that's sort of I, having I, your cake and eating it. <laughs> yeah, I, cer- I certainly will be there to, to participate in the cake eating. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, second, the third document to today is the joint declaration with the Arch Layman of Canterbury. Um, to give our listeners some context, they're going back to a meeting that happened 50 years ago, so in 1966, between Paul VI 
and Michael Ramsey, the, the arch layman of Canterbury at that time. And then JP II met with Robert Runcie and then George Carey, and then Benedict XVI met with Rowan Williams. And they have a tradition of, of praying a meeting of the Church of St. Gregory on the Chalian Hill uh, in, in Rome. Uh, and the significance of that church is that is where Pope, Pope St. Gregory the Great sent uh, St. Augustine of Canterbury to evangelize the Anglo-Saxons. So here, uh, with a church with such great history, with such importance for the church and for the English people, and, and now the, the United Kingdom, uh, they made their joint statement. Did you have a chance to look over this? And uh, again, what are the point of these joint statements when they're, they're saying over and over that uh, there are obstacles and yet we wish to continue to hold hands? It's a broken record. I mean, I've seen this for 50 years, you know, uh, this sort of thing. And, and uh, as I always point out, nothing has happened in these 50 years of ecumenism, even though the church in its past, before Vatican II, was very successful in reconciling uh, various uh, non-Catholic sects to itself. Uh, very successful by just remaining itself and requiring them to convert. But this is again a, a mixing. You see, this is a this is not a, a conversion thing. This is a mixing thing, and I think it, again it's one more step. You know, the, these these nice speeches and all that they give, and you know where they say really nothing. Uh, they they it it uh, is just a sort of getting to know you, like the song in the King and I. You know, it, uh, it it's. It's just one more step toward a, a, a general amalgamation of religions without any dogma. You can have whatever dogma you want. It doesn't doesn't matter except the rigid ones. You know that that's all it is. I mean, I don't think it's really even terribly significant. Uh, it's just a uh, you know it's a lot of platitudes and things that could be taken in two ways and. Um, all of the same uh, errors that we saw in his comments to the Lutherans, you know, the uh, and you know that the, uh, our Christian faith it says leads us to recognize the inestimable worth of every human life and to honor it in acts of mercy by bringing education, healthcare, food, and all the other socialist stuff, and uh, you know uh, to resolve conflict and build peace, you know. This is dogmaless religion for a better world. That's all it is. I mean, I really don't think it's really very significant even to our subject. It's just, it's just another one of those things. Our third segment today is the quote-unquote conservative pushback. And now we're coming back to what His Excellency alluded to earlier about the four cardinals. Uh, and some people are calling this a new Ottaviani intervention, Your Excellency. Um, so I have basically a three-part question. Firstly, can you let our listeners know what a dubia is and how that process works? Because I think it's important for, for people to understand that, that, strictly speaking, the Catholic Church has a mechanism for how to deal with circumstances like this. So what is a dubia? Secondly, um, can you would you see this as any kind of Ottaviani intervention? And then thirdly, explain exactly what these cardinals are asking for. Well, a, a dubia is the plural of dubium. A dubium is a doubt. So the uh, 
uh, yes, if there were in the traditional canon law, if a bishop or something were in doubt about the meaning of a law or, or application of a law, uh, he would write to Rome and Rome would send back what is known as a rescript, that is an authentic and an official response. And that's something you could act on and publish and and it would publish the, the response itself uh, as, as really part of the magisterium of the church if it were something doctrinal or, or part of the law of the church if it were something practical. That was known as a rescript, and there's, there's a whole chapter in, in canon law concerning rescripts. This is not really the same thing. I mean, to, to uh, the, uh, yes, if there were a, a Roman pontiff who uh, said some things that were doubtful and needed clarification, yes, theologians or, or the uh, cardinals could ask for that clarification. Remember the University of Paris sent uh, to John the Twenty Second. Uh, something like that, that, uh, you know, they, they found out that he was teaching as a private theologian only, that souls did not have the beatific vision immediately after death, but they had to wait until the end of the world. Uh, that was John the 22nd, and he backed off of it right away, but the, the, and the but that was only as a private theologian he was teaching that, uh, <clears throat> which was somewhat common at the time. As a matter of fact, Luther taught the same thing. First of all, there's no doubt in, <laughs> in Amoris Laetitia about what he's saying. There's no doubt at all. You know, for them to approach it as a doubt, I think, is dishonest. Uh, but they, I guess they want to take the, the proper steps, and they put these questions to him to force him, essentially, to go one way or the other on very important questions uh, uh, that concern Catholic morality. And their questions are good ones. Uh, about uh, it, it, They essentially concern the natural law and, and that the fact that circumstances cannot change the law of God uh, or the, the natural law, uh, that, uh, that you know, the, the law remains fixed and that, that you can't alter it for reasons of, of personal difficulties or circumstances. I mean, they, they, that's the, the gist of what they're asking him. Uh, and that's good. I mean, yeah, I would say that's good. Now, the, the problem is, though, that they, they uh, well, a couple of problems. One is that they are citing John Paul II and so forth. It means that they still do not understand that Vatican II is the problem. They are seeing Bergoglio as the problem. They do not understand that Bergoglio is simply reflecting Vatican II. They are citing John Paul II against him in these questions. But, you know, to, he could just as easily say, well, I'm the Pope, I can cite myself against John Paul II. You know, the, the, uh, John Paul II did not make any, you know, definitive statements. It, it's all just, you know, encyclical versus encyclical. Uh, that's all it is. Uh, and, you know, he could just as easily say, I, I, I've altered the doctrine or, or this is my encyclical, you know, I'm not John Paul II. So, you know, you're, you're, it's a fuzzy gray thing. I mean, the Novus Ordo was full of, of fuzziness and, and mush. Uh, so uh, so that, that's, the I would say, the biggest thing is that they have not realized that this is the effect of Vatican II. And so uh, the second thing is the heresy word was never pronounced. I mean, there should have been, 
in this that that Amoris Laetitia contains objectively heresies, and we want you to quote unquote clarify uh, that is retract these heresies. I mean, this, the approach should have been one of this is objectively heresy. We want you to retract these heresies. To you know, to put this soft, well, you know, give us a clarification of what you mean here and all of this is is sort of silly, I think. And I think it shows that they really don't have a lot of guts. The approach should have been one of heresy uh, uh, and, and evil discipline of giving a Holy Communion to those who are living in adultery. That's an evil discipline and it's universal and that ruins the indefectibility of the Catholic Church. Those are the things that should have been brought up, not whether you're contradicting John Paul II. See, so you know it, it lacks teeth, uh, you know, and and it should have been a a a, a type of monitum, an admonition of heresy that you are in heresy, retract. Otherwise, we will be bound to take steps against you as a legitimate Roman pontiff. See, if it had if it had said that. Well, that would have been, you know, a, a, a nice day in the Catholic Church. But, uh, you know, for those two reasons, I would say the thing is, it's, n it's not really comparable to the Ottaviani intervention, which wasn't really Ottaviani, it was actually Bishop Gerard de Laurier. <laughs> it was his intervention, and Ottaviani backed off of it later, you know, I mean, it, that too lacked teeth and, and lacked any courage. Uh, I... I you know, uh, it, yes, it's a step in the right direction, I would say that, but it, it's lacking so many things that it really needs that I, I don't have a lot of confidence in it. I don't think that they're going to go through with what the obvious uh, obligation is, and that is to declare him a, an anti-pope. Uh, I really don't think that they will do that, in my opinion. But, you know, let's pray for the grace that they see it and do it. I mean, who who knows, Your Excellency? We we had we had Brexit, we had Trump. I mean, yes, uh, yes. anything could happen, I suppose. Yes, uh, you know, it's a step in the right direction. I, I will say that, but it's very flawed and imperfect. Uh, it's it's gutless uh, you would, and confused. You would say a shaky, a shaky, uncertain step in the right direction. <laughs> yes, yes, I would say that. Uh, it's the first time that we've seen anything like this, but it, as I pointed out in my newsletter, what is far more sinful is what John Paul II permitted in the Code of Canon Law in 1983, and that was Holy Communion to non-Catholics. Mm. That is far, far more sinful than that Catholics who are living in sin approach the communion realm. Mm. And yet they're blind to that. I mean, this is small potatoes in comparison to the destruction of the unity of the church by giving Holy Communion to those who are outside of the church. The Holy Sacrament of the, the Sacrament of the Holy Eucharist is the symbol of the church's unity. That's why it must never be given to non-Catholics, not under any circumstances or exceptions. It cannot be given to non-Catholics. And it is a, a sacrilege against the central mystery of what the Holy Eucharist is. This is not a sacrilege against its central mystery. This is a sacrilege of giving someone in mortal sin Holy Communion, which is a terrible thing. But a sacrilege against the, we might say, the Eucharistic person of, of Christ himself, we might you know, say that 
properly understood, is far worse, far worse than what he's talking about here. So, you know, it, it's it took them fifty years to figure this out, and you know, it and you know, it has to do with sex, obviously. And you know, it's not until it's pie in their face that they they come and see this. You know, I just think it's very imperfect, and I don't have a lot of hope for it. But I, I do see it as at least a step in the right direction, and as you say, a shaky step. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's a it's a, a doubtful trumpet, as they say. So Francis responded to this uh, in a, we could say a sideways manner. He he was in an interview with someone named Stefania Falasca for uh, Avenire, which is an Italian Catholic newspaper. And uh, Andrea Tornielli, who writes for Vatican Inside, the Vatican Insider section for La Stampa, uh, commented broadly uh, on the response. The church exists only as an instrument for the communication of God's merciful plan to the people. During the council, the church felt it had the responsibility to be a living sign of the Father's love in the world. In Lumen Gentium, it went back to the origins of its nature, the gospel. This shifts the axis of Christianity away from a certain kind of legalism, which can be ideological, towards the person of God who became mercy through the incarnation of the Son. Some still fail to grasp the point. Um, they see things as black or white, even though it is in the course of life that we are called to discern. The council told us this, but historians say that a century needs to pass before a council is properly assimilated into the body of the church, and we are halfway there. So 50 more years, Your Excellency, and people will understand Vatican II better. Yes, because all of the Novus Ordo conservatives will have died out by then. <laughs> uh, the... Uh, but notice what Bergoglio does. He goes right back to the council. He understands that this is the mandate from the council and that that uh, that the, the church is not there to preach its gospel. It is not there to enforce the natural law. It is not there to exclude. It is there to invite. See, so he understands that it's the council. The others have not understood that it's the council. The others still are living in this, meaning those four cardinals, in the dream world that the council changed nothing. It's a dream world. It's a, it's a mythological fairy tale world that they live in, and they never give the explanation of how the council changed nothing. But it is this myth that they adhere to. All Novus Ordo conservatives adhere to it, that the council changed nothing, that we're going to find out someday, maybe in 50 years, how the council changed nothing. But right now, all we repeat is the council changed nothing. See, but he, Bergoglio is right in that the council mandated this. But those Novus Ordo conservatives are still trying to put the council together with Roman Catholicism, and it will never go together, not ever. They are still living in that, that mythological world. And it will never go together. Maybe they just need a and, chem and he, chemistry lesson, Your Excellency. They need to understand that oil <laughs> and water cannot be mixed into, right. into something. Right. It's square peg, round hole. It's what you learned when you were a, a tot. <laughs> you can't put the square peg in the round hole. And, and You have to acknowledge, Your Excellency, some <laughs> children do keep trying. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, you know, these Novus Ordo conservatives will never let go of that myth. 
And so they're, they're, they're talking through that myth and he is trying to demythologize them. Mm. You know, get with it. You are not with the council. You're still living before the council. These are things that those rigid people would say to me. You know, that, that's the conflict there. And, and those cardinals don't understand it. They need to look at the council and say, this is the cause of Bergoglio. This is why we have the problems in the church. It's 50 years of rot. 50 years of corruption. It's a drain, the, the swamp that needs to be drained. Definitely, that's a great, great analogy. The whole thing's got to go. It's a miserable swamp. It's full of corruption, all sorts of corruption, and it needs to go. That's the kind of letter they should send to him and and enrage him. <laughs> and then at the bottom say, you know, we're calling a conclave. <laughs> Now that would be a good day. <laughs> the seminarians would get another day off for that. Sure, sure. They got a day off for Trump, and they were promised a day off if the if the there would be the reconciliation of the Society of Saint Pius X with the modernists. Mm. Uh, not that that is something happy in itself, but it's indirectly happy that finally they can no longer deceive the people that they are a truly traditional organization. That will be happiness for me. Well, uh, in response to this, I would not exactly baiting, but the National Catholic Report, National Catholic Register rather, uh, said, uh, you know, what, what's going to happen if, if you don't get a good response uh, to your, your dubia? And, and Burke said, uh, well, then we would have to address that situation. There is in the tradition of the church, the practice of correction of the Roman pontiff. It is something that is quite, is clearly quite rare, but if there is no response to these questions, then I would say that it would be a question of taking a formal act of correction of a serious error. Yeah. Uh, first of all, serious error, it, we're, we're talking about heresy here. I mean, the questions that they're asking are really questions of heresy. For example, does one still need to regard as the valid teaching of St. John Paul II's encyclical Veritatis Splendor, number 81, based on sacred scripture and on the tradition of the church? I'm quoting from their dubium or dubia, according to which, quote, circumstances or intentions can never transform an act intrinsically evil by virtue of its object into an act subjectively good or defensible as a choice. Now, that statement that's in quotes there is Catholic doctrine. You cannot deny that without becoming a heretic. See, so, I mean, to say error, you know, it's all toothless. They need dentures. You know, they, they, and a correction, again, as I said in my newsletter, to whom do we listen? The Holy Father or the correctors of the Holy Father? Who has authority there? Hmm. You know, it, it makes a mockery of the magisterium of the church, and it makes a, a, a useless and stupid what they're doing. They have no authority as four cardinals to correct the, the pope. Who are they? Right. Just to correct him? They have the, the ability to accuse him of heresy and to act on it. But to, for them to say, oh, you're wrong about this? 
He could say, I'm the Pope. You're wrong. Right. <laughs> Who's in charge here? You're the ones that are wrong. I mean, it, 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 they have it all mixed up and they're afraid. They're afraid of what they really need to do, which is to accuse him of heresy. And that's where they have their power because they are electors. And the only way that they can move against him is if he departs from the faith. That's the only thing that justifies moving against them in any kind of practical way. The, the, you know, for them, you know, the four cardinals out of what, a hundred and some, to say, you're wrong about this, you know, they look very foolish. They really do. And it is foolish. Well, and Francis had his sort of uh, comeback to that by two days ago, not renewing his, uh, Burke and Cardinal Pell's appointments to the Congregation of Divine Worship. So if there's any doubt in Burke's mind about how his dubia is, are going down, um, his, his non-renewal to that congregation uh, you know, should say everything. Um, as part of that sort of crackdown, we found out uh, Sandra Magister wrote a piece uh, which, which uh, Rorate picked up, um, uh, a Banana Republic Gestapo for Francis, either defend Amoris Laetitia or you're in trouble. Um, so there's uh, um, a soda <laughs> Magister calls it a sodalitium franciscanum. Um, so maybe your excellency, give us a, uh, for our listeners who don't understand what the illusion is that Magister is making. Uh, explain to us about what uh, Pius X's uh, network was and how we would contrast that with this uh, this new. Um, Again, Magister's words, not mine, a Banana Republic Gestapo. <laughs> it's not a very nice thing to say about Argentina. I would not qualify that as a Banana Republic. But in any case, uh, yes, St. Pius X instituted through Cardinal Delay and Monsignor Benigni, not to be confused with Bognini, uh, who created the new mass, but a Monsignor Benigni, uh, as something called the Sodalitium Pianum, which means the, the pious, referring to St. Pius X, not piety, the pious society, you might call it. And it was a network of individuals, both clergy and lay, throughout the entire world, who would report to a central place, uh, uh, you know, uh, in which their uh, their notings of modernism, you know, where they would discover modernism, in, say, in a seminary or some other institution, uh, that they that people would denounce them to this central place, and that these denunciations would make their way to Cardinal Delay and ultimately to Pius X himself, and Pius X. Uh, very vigorously reacted to these denunciations, of course, verifying them, but rea reacted to them very vigorously by sacking people. And even uh, in one case, he closed the seminary, Perugia, because it was infected with modernism. You know, so his reign was very much characterized by that. And he irritated a lot of people in doing that, but he saw it as quite necessary because the modernists were uh, using subterfuge. They wanted to remain in the institution and modernize it. And Pius X correctly figured the only way to fight that is with similar sub subterfuge, and that is to, to root them out by these denunciations. 
because they'll never surface. And he was absolutely right about it. And if the, his successors had pursued that, then the, the, we would not have had Vatican II. It's just a, a fact. So now Bergoglio has, <laughs> has instituted his own sodalitium, so to speak, sodalitium franciscanum, that's what they're calling it, to make sure that his ideas concerning uh, adulterers and adultery and communion for adulterers and so forth is being taught in the pontifical seminaries in Rome, which is typically the place where future bishops are trained. And so they're very important. And uh, so it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, he's a Stalinist. He's a, you know, he wants to enforce the Vatican II orthodoxy, so to speak. And you have to be a true ecumenist and a, and a true uh, inclusive type. You know, everybody's got to be inclusive and, and that we have to break down the barriers to ecumenism and all of this. And one of those, obviously, is divorce and remarriage. So how can you do ecumenism with, with uh, Lutherans Lu uh, following Luther, who permitted uh, the, the uh, elector of Hesse to, um, to have two wives at the same time? So. <laughs> well, and, and again, we, we look at this and we think, okay, uh, we understand why Pius X did what he did and it was effective uh, because it, obviously we, we were looking for the clarity, uh, we were looking for the church's clarity on doctrine to be enforced and we wanted the modernists out. What's fascinating is that the modernists are then taking on the tactics of Pius X for their own wicked ends. And in this article uh, on Rarate, we see the letter received by faculty at the Pontifical uh, Institute, the, the JP2 Institute for Marriage, Marriage and the Family, which, which falls under the umbrella of the Lateran University. And the, the threats are, are not hollow threats because we, we saw earlier that Francis intervened to subject the, the board of the Institute to, to his view on marriage. And I'm just going to read from from this email, uh, which is which is really disturbing in its own way, um, as has already happened and is happening for other pastoral, academic and cultural Catholic institutions. Um, our observatory has begun in the current academic year, the monitoring of the contents of publications of faculty and the teachings imparted in class. Uh, in order to make clear the adaptations or eventual disagreements regarding the address made by Pope Francis. goes on, in particular, the contents of published works and the imparted classes will be taken into consideration in reference to what is expressed in the apostolic exhortation Amoris Laetitia, according to the image of the church that is not of a church thought in one's own image and likeness orienting research and teaching not anymore towards a too abstract theological ideal of matrimony almost artificially built far from the concrete situation and from the effective possibilities of families as they are. To this end, we will make use of the analytical and critical reading of the studies published by the faculty of the theses of graduation and doctorate approved by the Institute of the syllabus of classes of, of their bibliographies, as well as interviews of students made after classes in the square in front of the Lateran University. So you're actually, they're going to monitor the syllabuses. They're going to monitor all the reading that's and uh, research that's being done by the faculty. They're going to monitor the syllabus. They're going to monitor bibliographies, and they're going to interview students to make sure that not only is a Morris Laetitia a theory, 
but that it's being implemented uh, at this level, at the university, as you say, the incubation for possible new bishops. So they, they're having the right methods, the methods of Pius X, but it's being used for invidious ends. Yes, it is the war between modernism and Catholicism. And if anyone sees it as anything different, he's being deceived. This is a war, an ecclesiastical civil war, between modernism and Catholicism. And you have to take a side in it. Uh, and and uh, this is, yeah, he's using the, the, he wants Vatican II orthodoxy. That's what he's looking for. And it makes sense. You know, if, if Vatican II is Catholicism, then let's have Vatican II orthodoxy. If it isn't, let us have nothing to do with it. Let us repudiate it. Let us condemn it. See? But to stay in the middle is to be of the devil. If you're interested in Magister, there's also an article at Chiesa which uh, talks about some so-called red errors, uh, which again is a catalog of, of mistakes that Francis has made. I'm going to pass over that for now and move on to Louis Verecchio. Louis Verecchio was going to be a speaker at an Angelus press conference for the SSPX this year, but he was removed just a few days before because he has called Francis an anti-pope. So again, we can't say this is a declaration from the SSPX, this is simply a layman, but this is a layman who was slated to give a talk at an SSPX conference. He has given talks at an SSPX conference before, but he says that, uh, you know, after after this, the Avenire uh, interview that we uh, discussed in which Francis pushed back against the dubia, he said that, you know, clearly... Uh, this man is an anti-pope. Now, whether he's going to get on the resignationist bus, uh, whatever else, but we do know here is a, a Novus Ordo conservative who's, you know, we have to applaud that he's saying that uh, Francis is an anti-pope. Yes, uh, again, I, I think his conversion is imperfect for a number of reasons, uh, but, uh, you know, we can be happy that at least he <laughs> figured it out. Uh, the uh, I think it's imperfect because, again, he's seeing Bergoglio as the problem and not Vatican II as the problem. But I would, to a certain extent, blame ourselves for that in the sense of the Sede Vicantis. We are always harping on the personal heresy, the personal acts of heresy of these Vatican II popes. And I say that's not the place to harp on, hmm. or that's not what we should be harping on. The point is that the whole Vatican to reform is not Catholic, and that these people, whether it's John the Twenty Third, Paul the Sixth, all the others, are have have been and are pushing the Vatican to reform. It's a new religion. All right, that's why we're rejecting it. It's a new religion. Whether you know uh, Bergoglio is a heretic or not, actually does not affect my going to church on Sunday. If the bishop of the diocese and the priest are good Orthodox Catholics, all right, his being a heretic is something that the College of Cardinals would have to look into and, and act on. But what the problem is and what has made us all react is a much deeper problem, and that is that Vatican II represents a new religion. And I think all of the Sedevacantist arguments should switch to that because it is unassailable. The, the problem with this, you know, talking about the, the uh, personal heresy of these popes 
can be assailed in all sorts of ways as we have seen recently. You know, and not that these these arguments have value, but they are nonetheless they can be brought up and they have traction among certain people. You know, when the SSPX and and and, and uh, people supporting Bergoglio come back with these, they, they their arguments have traction. They they cannot come back to the argument uh, that Vatican II has created a new religion. Uh, they cannot because their very stance of resisting it attests to that fact. If it is not a new religion, then why are you resisting it? Why have you set up seminaries and why have you consecrated bishops and so forth if it is not a new religion? And and what does Archbishop Lefebvre say? It is a new religion. See, they, they cannot assail it. And I think that that's the point. That, you know, he has picked out, uh, Varecchio has picked out uh, you know, Bergoglio as the problem, and certainly, you know, he is a problem, but the real deep problem is Vatican II, and Bergoglio is nothing else than a creature of Vatican II, and he's a consistent creature of Vatican II. The others were not consistent, because they understood that you had to have a certain continuity. You couldn't, again, put the frog into the boiling water, but Bergoglio was putting that frog into the boiling water, Mm. And and yes, you know, there's a certain amount of reaction to it. But so you know, I I'm happy to see that he's drawn that conclusion. But I think again, his his conversion, we might say, is imperfect. The last item in the conservative pushback segment for today's episode is the fact that Da Silvera is being circulated at the Vatican. There's a story uh, from a German website about uh, the, this this study, which is called The Theological Hypothesis of a Heretical Pope, is being studied by theologians in Rome. Um, uh, I suppose I have two questions here, Your Excellency. One, can you tell our listeners a little bit about this study by Da Silvera? I don't think it's very well known in English. And secondly, um, do you put any credence in this in the reporting of this story? Uh, well, Juan da Silvera, he wrote a work back in the 1970s. I remember seeing it. It was it was typed, you know, and, and mimeographed. Uh, I remember seeing it at a cone. Uh, and uh, it, it was a compilation of practically what everyone said concerning a heretical pope. And the purpose of it was really to protect Paul VI from, from the accusation of heresy. But it did contain a great deal of uh, good information. Uh, so that's what that is. It is recently translated into Italian and and again published in Italian. Whether you know they're reading that, I don't know. I mean, you know, what are your sources? You know, it's a it's an article in Germany. Uh, what are your sources for that? For saying that, it could be that you know one of them was seen with it, or you know that that it's circulating around the Vatican. I, I don't know. Uh, I hope it is. I mean, you know, my my. I see that the, the solution to the problems in the church is precisely that, that at least some cardinals come to the conclusion that Vatican II is the problem and that they elect someone who will fix the church on that basis, that will burn the documents of Vatican II. There's going to be no solution in the church until the documents of Vatican II are burned, both physically and mentally, so to speak. In other words, in principle. 
that that is the solution so i mean i'm happy to see at least some activity some rumblings but there has to be a big earthquake and it has to be based on the, on true principles and so I, you know i'm i'm just you know i've been at this for over 50 years and you know i'm just a little skeptical uh, and you know whether you know this is circulating around I, I i hope it's true and i hope they do something but again i i see a lot of imperfection in it hmm. Our last segment today is called Fat Lady Watch, and this is an allusion to obviously the SSPX and their coming unification, which both His Excellency and I think are very possible is very possible very soon after many years of temporizing. And the story we have comes from uh, Rorate Chaley. Um, there was a, a Novosordo diocesan um, chaplain, Father Cusick, who is a chaplain in the Navy. Um, and he went to this uh, big shindig that they threw for all the benefactors of the new seminary uh, in Virginia. And Father's quote in the article is, I asked the bishop if he had good news to share about the status of the personal prelature, rumored to be on offer in Rome, in order to integrate the society fully and permanently into the life of the universal church. The bishop described the current arrangements as, quote, almost ready and one of, fine-tuning, his demeanor and expression exuding confidence and serenity. When I asked if the situation was one merely for prayer, he was very quick to assert that developments in the canonical proceedings had progressed beyond that point. But he said the problem is not there, but with the matter of Vatican II. He went on to elaborate that the documents of Vatican II are at issue, a matter with which many readers are already aware, the remaining sticking points being those documents treating religious liberty, ecumenism, and reform of the liturgy. The society has been very firm and consistent over the years that these teachings are incompatible with the integral tradition of the church. Um, the bishop elaborated by describing the talks in the documents of Vatican II with Rome as being in a clarification stage. He mentioned this as being the case in particular because of the statement of by Archbishop Muller that the society must accept Vatican II, including the portions at issue. Um, to say it's almost ready, but then to say the remaining sticking points are religious liberty, ecumenism, and reform of the liturgy is sort of saying, uh, you know, we're almost married, but um, I haven't met her yet. Yeah, I, I don't even know how to comment on that. that that's, you know, it, the cake is almost ready, but, you know, we... Uh, the cook hasn't still, gone to baking school yet. It's, it's still mush, and we haven't turned on the oven yet. I mean... You know, it, it's, I mean, how do you respond to that? I, I really don't know what to say about that, that they're still discussing those issues after all these years, years and years and years and years, and they still haven't ironed those out, you know, and but it's almost ready and, you know, it's around the corner. They've been saying this for years. You know, I think the fat lady has taken off her helmet and, and sat herself down in a big chair. And, you know, that, that, you know, it's just one more delay. And, and, uh, and as many say, they, they put out this talking to the Vatican as their form of submission to the Roman pontiff. Mm. You see, we're talking to them. We're interacting with them. We're, you know, that's their way of saying we're with the Pope. And so they, they put out this stuff. Who knows what's going on? 
but you know, it's always around the corner. It's tomorrow, and and you know, you'll see, and everything's everything's on. And and then you know, you have you know, a comment like that. We we have three huge doctrinal problems to overcome. <laughs> it just makes me laugh. Mm. It's the only thing I can do with that. I mean, it's it's just perfectly ridiculous. Well, well, we'll we'll keep track of that. Obviously, as as you know, uh, Francis Watch listeners, the SSPX is not something we strictly speaking cover on Francis Watch, but it does touch on issues that we we discuss here. Uh, Your Excellency, it's uh, the end of the liturgical year, beginning of the new liturgical year, and I would say the your your final sprint towards this first part of the seminary year. So, as always, I'll ask, how are things at the seminary? <laughs> Uh, it's everything's going well as usual. Uh, uh, our new group of seminarians is very promising. They're persevering for the most part. We lost one uh, who decided he didn't have a vocation, uh, but that's quite normal in the seminary. And uh, but the others are persevering very nicely. And uh, uh, we uh, we you know we have a fuller faculty this year with Father Selway, uh, and. Uh, uh, I don't know. I'll see. We're we're doing some painting of the courtyard. <laughs> That's about the biggest news that there is. Uh, you know, there's really nothing going on that isn't uh, good seminary life. That's the only thing I could say. Uh, what we do need to do, though, is I'm seeing and I'm discussing with the other priests, is that we really need to expand. Uh, I, I'm even considering a moratorium on accepting new candidates until we expand our apostolate more. You know, for so many years we were without priests, and so that stymied our ability to expand and to to have a place where these priests can work and and go. And I'm just seeing an imbalance now. Uh, Bergoglio is is having the effect of of you know, bringing more people toward us, but, you know, can we place these people? Can we support them? Uh, I, I may actually do that. Now, that might be forced anyway by our lack of rooms. And also, you know, uh, you know, I considered even expanding the seminary by building on. But again, can we, uh, you know, we have a hard time keeping the seminary open as it is uh, with, uh, you know, food and maintenance and all of the other things. Uh, you know, uh, could we afford a, a new wing and, and 10 more seminarians? I, I don't think we could, actually. I don't think we could. You know, so we're limited, and and uh, so we need to really concentrate on expansion, uh, expansion of our apostolate. And so what I've been trying to do, I've, I saw this years ago, uh, but uh, I've been trying to do that and uh, uh, little by little, but... Uh, you know, but it's tougher. It's a much tougher thing to do today than it was, say, 40 years ago in the 70s or 80s, because the old people who remember uh, have died off. You, you don't ha didn't have to say too much to a person who was raised in, uh, before Vatican II to say, you know, there's something wrong with the Novus Ordo and you should come to the traditional mass. There was not a lot of discussion you had to have. Most of them were already there anyway. But now you're dealing with younger people who are attracted, but not in the same way. You know, it, it's they they it, it's a bit of a harder sell in some cases. You know, not to put it in a well. I've way, said but... this before, Your Excellency. It's not just that; it's the fact that they've never experienced a garage mass. 
Right. There's nothing to 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 motivate you to build a church and to get involved more than going to mass in a garage or a hotel. You know, uh, yes. and a lot of our young people are spoiled. You have a beautiful church out in Arizona. You have a beautiful church down in Florida. Um, His Excellency yes. and Father Chicago have a beautiful church up in uh, Cincinnati. I mean, obviously, we could add more beauty and add more stained glass, but it's more than a garage uh, by several mm-hmm. orders of magnitude. And it's easy to just yes. show, you know, you go, they get mass every Sunday, every holy day of obligation, every day of the week. I mean, what crisis? You know, things are fine. Mm-hmm. We have Mass every Sunday. What's the problem, Your Excellency? Yes, yes, I think so. I think there's less of a willingness to bear up with adversity. Also, I'm, I was talking to Father Zapp about this very problem, and, and he said, it's the great apostasy. There's nobody interested in religion. Mm. You know, they're, they're just not interested. They're just not there. Uh, it's an apostasy, and and your numbers that, that are interested are much smaller. And then what you can attract to, especially the state of Acanthus position, is yet smaller. See, so uh, we have to take that all into consideration. Well, I think we'll we'll leave it there, Your Excellency. We've been talking uh, for for quite a quite a while, and you know our listeners can two only... hours and ten minutes and twelve <laughs> seconds. Our our listeners can only take so much. <laughs> Uh, Francis, before they may get some indigestion of their own, and maybe they'll get a Protestant revolt moment uh, in the toilet yes. as well. So we don't want to uh, <laughs> spread spread Lutheranism too far. And uh, we we started our episode with Lutheranism. We'll we'll end it there. Your Excellency, thanks so much for your time uh, as always. And uh, we look forward to pro- we'll probably have one more Francis watch before the end of our season, and then we'll let you have a, a quiet winter and Christmas rest. Oh, quiet winter and Christmas. I'm going to Australia for two weeks. <laughs> I like well, the way you say that. <laughs> well, yes, Your Excellency, I would say, uh, maybe I shall say a warmer uh, Christmas than you're used to. I mean, you're used to warm cri- Flor- Florida Christmases, but it's summer in Australia, so yes, um, yes. that'll be a different experience for you. Uh, for those who don't know, obviously, His Excellency will be in Australia for a couple weeks. We'll be very happy that Drew Restoration Team is not sponsoring this event, but we are helping in our own way to try to support it, and we're very excited uh, for uh, His Excellency's presence down there. It's going to uh, force a lot of people to confront some some realities, and um, it's good for them to have uh, Bishop Sanborn down there. They don't really know what they're in for, but uh, they'll know after his visit. Again, as always, Your Excellency, thanks for your time. Thank you. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episodes, please email questions at truerestoration.org. We want to remind you that Francis Watch is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful, and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch.
See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.